uh, please join me in prayer, and then we'll look at Romans 7 together. Father, thanks so much that we can gather here within these walls listening for your voice today. We trust and pray that you, you would teach us, Father, and that we would find hope in the battle that we all face, Father, as we seek to live according to ideals that you have ignited within our heart. So may you instruct us, Father, but not just instruct us, shape us, Father, to be people of hope. We pray in Christ's name, amen. It's uh, important, I think, and significant that this passage shows up in our run through Romans on Veterans Day because this passage is about war. And so I'm gonna begin by reminding you a little bit about the meaning of Veterans Day. Veterans Day, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918, marked the end of World War I. So today is actually 100 years from the end of World War I, which was a horrific war. 20 million dead, 21 million wounded, half the dead and wounded civilians, Millions unable to function after the war due to PTSD, which didn't have that name at the time, but presented in the form of suicide, depression, insanity, addiction, broken relationships. And so in the wake of the war, November 11th became a holiday all over Western civilization. In Europe, I've been there on the 11th, and it's celebrated everywhere. Uh, there's still in Britain to this day, two minutes of silence, at 11 a.m. on November 11th. And uh, it is said in Britain that it's not Good Friday, it's not Easter, it's not Christmas that draws people to church, it's Armistice Day. This is the most uh, heavily attended church service all throughout Europe. And then uh, Woodrow Wilson, as you may know, in the wake of World War II, articulated his 14 points, hoping for better days ahead, as he called for the uniting of all allied forces in Western Europe uh, to work together so that this would be indeed the war to end all wars. And then you know what happened after that. All hell broke loose slowly over a period of a decade or two, culminating then in World War II. But during that period of the 1920s, actually the whole civilized world was depressed. And you know that based on the best sellers uh, from that period of time. Uh, book titles like this, The End of the World, that's 1920. Social Decay and Degeneration, 1921. The Decay of Capitalist Civilization, 1923. The Twilight of the White Races, 1926. The Decline of the West, 1926 through 1928, a bestseller. When Will Civilization Crash, 1927. Racial Decay, 1928. The Day After Tomorrow, What's Gonna Happen at the End of the World, 1928. Riddle's Sterilization of the Unfit, 1929. Modern Civilization on Trial, 1931. The Problem of Decadence, 1932. The Dance of Death, 1933. Are you happy yet? So, like, why am I telling you all this? Because... All of Western civilization was actually living out the reality of what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is a battle, and the summary statement of the battle in Romans 7 is this. Now, let's take it from the cosmic level to the personal level, and this is what Paul says. Romans 7, 14 and 15, the summary is this. I'm doing the very thing I hate. Can anyone in the room identify ever? All of us can identify if we're honest. 
So when a person or a family or a civilization comes to the point of despair that arises due to this awareness of our failure to do our best, to be our best, at that point of despair, we're now at a crossroads. And it's the decisions that we make at this crossroads that determine whether we move toward the life for which we're created or spend the rest of our lives in endless frustration. All of us face the dissonance between who we are and who we want to be. We all face that. The big question on the table in Romans 7 is what do we do with that dissonance, right? And, and, and so what we, what we need to do as we look at Romans 7 is begin by flying above the text a little bit, reminding ourselves what's the point of Romans 7 and the book of Romans as a whole. And I'll remind you that the point of Romans is Paul is writing to talk about the profoundly uniting power of the gospel. The gospel is able to unite. This was a vital message then because you had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians throwing rocks at each other theologically based on different interpretations of what it means to follow Jesus. So Paul's trying to show them that Jews and Gentiles are, in spite of their differences, united in two very, very important ways. And it's these two uniting realities that define their life together. And it's those two uniting realities that we want to look at this morning. So if you're an outline person, uh, I didn't really prepare this till yesterday because I was sick. And so there's no outline in the bulletin. But uh, the two uniting realities are this. Number one, we're united in our death of idealism. And number two, we're united in the possibility of breakthrough. United in, in the death of idealism, united in breakthrough. And so we're going to look at those two things. And we need this now more than ever because the story of hope that God is writing in the world uh, is, is uniting us no matter how you voted, no matter what color your skin is, no matter what your net worth is. doesn't matter, as we'll see even, what our unique views might be on certain practices within the church, we're united by these two things, the death of idealism and the breakthrough found in Christ. That's what unites us, not these other things. So let's look at those two things this morning together. Beginning with this, we're united in the death of idealism. So a big point here in Romans 7 has to do with our relationship with the law and you might think at first blush, well, how is that uniting? Because only the Jews had the law. But in reality, not only do the Jews has, have the law, Paul has gone to great lengths to all, already show us that uh, Gentiles also have the law, but it's the law, in a sense, written in their own hearts. So we'll get into this in just a moment here. Paul asks a very important question in verse 7. Is the law sin? And it, he's, kind of, he's kind of saying here, look, if we can't ever live up to this ideal... What's, what's really the point of having the law? And this leads Paul to address the reality that all people have a law. The Jews, of course, have the written law. But for Gentiles, there was this long tradition in both Greek and Roman philosophy and poetry in which people complained over why, even though they knew the right thing to do, they wouldn't do it. Does this make sense? So in other words, this... This notion of having an ideal and failing to live up to it isn't something unique to people who go to Bible studies. This notion of a dissonance between who we are and who we want to be affects all of humanity. So Paul says that this death of idealism is uniting for all people. All of us face a dissonance between who we want to be 
and who we are. We know it because we have this thing in, in uh, Western culture called New Year's resolutions, right? And we, all of us do this. We say, oh yes, this year's gonna be different. And we're gonna do things better, you know, and you make weight goals and exercise goals. And, and, and for me, you know, writing goals or whatever your goals are. And, and then uh, you look back at the end of the year or at the end of the first week of January and you go, what happened? You know, how did I fail? to reach these goals. Man, I had these great intentions and then it all collapsed. And for we who are in the church, this becomes even a bigger deal at a level because we spiritualize this and make commitments to Christ. And we say, you know what? I'm done with this sin. I'm done with this addiction. I'm done with this anger. I'm done with this profligate spending. I'm done with this self-pity. I'm done with this cynicism. And then even though we say it, and pray it, it happens again. This is what Paul is writing about. And what he says is it applies to everybody because C.S. Lewis, in his argument for the existence of God and mere Christianity, points out that there's a moral law that runs through the fabric of the whole universe. So soci sociologists argue, no, there is no God because there's no universal law because, because laws are different in different cultures. In some cultures, Cannibalism is okay. In some cultures, slavery is okay. In some cultures, disregard for the elderly is okay. Yes, there are differences. But hear me, in every culture, there's an ideal that people fail to live up to. In every single culture throughout history, and the thread of that ideal runs throughout all cultures. In other words, everybody wants peace. Everyone's offended when they're lied to. If someone owns something, you don't take it and presume ownership in any culture. Human life has value. If you're married, your spouse is your spouse, not your neighbor's spouse in every culture. So there's like a thousand axioms that draws together as humanity. And C.S. Lewis says, where did that come from? This is an evolution because People uh, who live up to these cultural ideals actually sometimes sacrifice their lives and remove themselves from the, from the gene pool because we realize that courage is a universal cultural value higher than self-preservation. So, so there's, this, there's this thread running throughout all of humanity that's actually an argument for the existence of God. So Greeks, Romans, Shakespeare... Quentin Tarantino, Wes Anderson, Steven Spielberg, they all say the same thing. They all say this, there's an ideal. And we fail so often to reach the ideal that when Oscar Schindler comes along or Abe Lincoln or MLK or Gandhi, we celebrate and we're like this, someone lived well, right? It's that rare. So this is the human dilemma in a nutshell and we need to pay attention to it because it's right here that the gospel is profoundly relevant, not just to us, but to everyone. Because this is the problem, right? We know in Genesis 12 that Abraham shouldn't lie about the identity of his wife and call his wife his sister, but he lies anyway. We know he shouldn't sleep with the maid, but he sleeps with the maid anyway. Moses knows he shouldn't hit the rock, but he hits the rock. David knows he shouldn't impregnate his neighbor's wife and murder her husband, but he does it anyway. There's stuff we know we should do and we don't. There's stuff we know we shouldn't do and we do. That's this chapter, right? And so this dissonance 
between who we are and who we're called to be creates this crossroads where the most uh, profound response determines how we're going to live our lives the rest of our days. So here you are, uh, and, and there's a dissonance. You're here, and you want to live here, and, and, and this, is, this is the death of idealism, right? What do I do with this dissonance? And there's, there's really three options. And so we're going to look at these three options. Over here, you can destroy the rules, like behind door one. You can destroy the rules, and then there's no more dissonance, right? Like kill your ideals, and you're fine. Number two, you can just walk away from the faith entirely. Number three, you can live a double life. So those are three options. I can destroy the rules, I can walk away, or I can live a double life. Well, let's look at these. There's a group that would just destroy the rules, and they would basically say this, look, our ideals are just human constructs designed to control people, to control cultures, and we'd all be better off if we simply followed our instincts and did what we wanted without any regard for any ideals. Does this make sense? So there's a group of people that say, look, just follow your instincts. It's kind of Rousseau's noble savage idea. It's the idea that if we just do what feels right, everybody's going to be happy. If you grew up in the 60s, you, you kind of felt this a little bit. Kind of, uh, you know, I can't remember exactly the phrase, but it's something like tune out and drop dead or something like, tune out and drop in and get high. I don't know what it was, but I was only 12, you know, but the, the, the point would be, like, here we are and there's this dissonance, and so we're, we're like this, I'm done. I'm done fighting. We're just going to, if it feels good, do it, right? And, and, and the problem then, in that construct, people say, the problem isn't our failure to live up to our ideals, the problem is having these ideals, a great example of this is a book entitled Sex at Dawn, which made the rounds here in the early part of the 21st century. Uh, Dan Savage of The Stranger loves this book. And the thesis of the book is this, you didn't fail monogamy, monogamy failed you. In other words, like you were never intended to live in a covenant relationship with one person sexually for your whole life. That's ridiculous. So why are we trying to live up to an ideal that we can never attain? Parenthetically, I'll uh, note that a biologist wrote a rebuttal called Sex at Dusk, uh, talking about the folly of this notion that everybody would be happy if we were just profligate in our sexuality. He says it's just ridiculous, it doesn't work, but whatever, right? So, but that's an example here. And so after World War I, what you had was the death of ideals. And when you, when you end up with the death of ideals, what happens is people in power create new ideals. And this is exactly what happened at the end of World War I. Euthanizing those deemed defective became the new normal. I don't know if you know that, but it was true. And, and, and sanctioned not only uh, uh, at kind of these high philosophical levels and not only the Reich, but there were pastors throughout Europe and America uh, authorizing and sanctioning eugenics. Vilifying Jews became normal. Sex outside of covenant relationships became normal. In other words, if there is no law, it's not that there's no law, it's that there's a new law. There's a new normal, and the new normal is created by people in power, and it ends up being destructive. And so uh, the law can be changed when we say there's no law, law doesn't disappear, a new law is created. Does this, does this make sense? So it's, it's really not the best option to say we're just going to destroy the rules because there will always be new rules. Always, always, always. It'll just be now, not rules from God, but rules 
created by people in power, whoever those people happen to be. And history tells us that this is exactly how it works. Anarchy is unsustainable. So that's not really a good option. Second option, we can just walk away, right? I'm done fighting this battle, and so I'm done seeking to live according to my ideals. And if you're a Christian, what that means is I'm done with this that we do. I'm done listening for God's revelation. I'm done gathering in a community. I'm done with accountability. I'm done with small groups. I'm, I'm done with, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to live my life now. And my, and my, and my world's going to shrink down, and, and I'm going to walk away into isolation. And when I walk away into isolation, I will create my own set of ideals, but my ideals now Will, will more or less align with who I am. Does this, does this make sense? So, I, like, I can't attain. I cannot attain this, so I'm not going to fight anymore. Um, if you try and climb Mount Rainier, about somewhere between 10 and 12,000 feet, many of us will get altitude sickness, right? And when you get altitude sickness, uh, you still have a couple thousand feet to go, and you have, you have an option at that point, right? My, my daughter here, we climbed very near uh, together many, many years ago. And I remember um, Christy got sick and she, and she threw up. And I was like this, oh, you want to go da back down? And she goes, well, why would I want to go down now? Like, the worst is over, let's go to the top, right? And, and that's a, I think it's a great attitude. But many people, when they throw up, they're like this, I'm done. I'm out of here. This, is, this stopped being fun. And, and so now I descend. And this is actually what happens to many, many people in the faith community. And I'll just note for you that uh, millennials and those younger than millennials are walking away from the church at a rapid rate. And churches are dying all across America. And this is, this is exactly the reason why. Because this dissonance is unsustainable right? We're not intended to live in this dissonance forever. We have to face it, but we can't live in it forever. And so one of the options is to say, I'm done fighting. I'm no longer a spiritual mountaineer. The, uh, the summit is too high for me. I'm out. And, we, and then we withdraw into our own private life. And, and whatever that is for us, whether it's materialism or art or medicine or philanthropy or uh, profligate sexuality, Whatever it is, that's where we live. And there's no more dissonance. And that can be kind of comforting. And yet I'm going to tell you that, that living there is not the life for which God created you. Because you're intended to live up here, right? It would be as if Frodo turned around and said, no, I'm done. I, like, I'm not, I'm not going any farther. It's too hard, right? Well, you can go back and you can, you can live with the rest of the hobbits in the Shire, but uh, you're not made for that. Like, I just want to encourage you, don't settle. There's a battle going on. There's a dissonance. Good. It's good. Don't settle. Third option, so like I'm reviewing now the options, right? Like, I can walk away, I can change the rules, or third, I can live a double life. And that's where I know I fall short, I know I fail consistently, I know I have beneath the veil of spirituality, whatever my issues are, my, my addiction to wealth, my cynicism, my anger towards my children, my bitterness, my, 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 my sexual problems, 
whatever, whatever it is, it's here, and I'm called to here, and I don't deal with it, but I put on a Jesus veil. Does this make sense? And so, you know, I come, and I gather, and, it's, and I'm fine, and it's all good, and, you know, we discuss kind of church stuff in a setting like this, and we talk about teaching Bible studies, and we talk about going to classes, and we, you know, we sing good songs, and we take notes, and we think, yeah, this is the Christian life. Like, uh, doing all these things and remaining fundamentally unchanged in this battle. Like, continually, continually, continually falling short. And I'm going to tell you, that's also pretty unsustainable, actually, right? Uh, you have an image to keep up, and the consequences of coming clean, as you keep up this image for an extended period of time, the consequences of coming clean sound terrifying. Sound terrifying. I came in uh, to speak one time at a conference on the East Coast, and this guy comes to me and he, and he says, Richard, I hope you're better than last week's speaker. And I, I was like, what does that even mean? Can you kind of unpack that, right? And he said, well, the guy gets up to speak on, on uh, Monday, which is like the first day of a five, like he's got five sessions to do. And Monday, this is what he says. He says, I have nothing to say to any of you. Uh, I'm broke. I'm addicted to alcohol. My marriage is failing. And I've been invited here to teach Bible studies, but he said, uh, I'm just a shell of a human, Right? Now, uh, let's talk about this for just a minute, right? I would argue that that's a pretty courageous thing to do, even though he was never asked back. <laughs> because you, think, you see, the thing is, I, I would say he had the courage at least, maybe not the right setting, but he had the courage to finally come clean. He had the courage to come clean. And... I can tell you, this guy's rebuilding his life. But it took a coming clean and a saying, you know, people think I'm the answer, man. I'm not. People think I'm holy. I'm not. People think because I wrote music and sold books and I'm on a speaking circuit that I'm holy and I'm not. You can live a double life. You can. But it's unsustainable and exhausting and, and in the end, destructive when everything comes into the light. And this, as we all know, this is a pandemic within the evangelical community. It has been for 30 years, right? Uh, not only leaders, but many of us who proclaim outwardly and live an entirely different life on the inside. This is wrong. So, so those are the options. Destroy the rules, walk away, live a double life. You're at a crossroads, you can do those things. And, and, and none of these are right. So remember, I'm going to loop back now. What was the question that Paul asked? Is the law sin? Paul says, in no way, verse 7. So he goes on then to declare the value of the law. And this is what he says. He says, look, it isn't the law that's sinful. So don't change the law. Or don't, don't walk away from the law. Don't live a double life. Rather, he says, here's the point of the law. The law exists to reveal your condition. That's why the law exists. So this ideal here is, is the ideal. This is the ideal. And what it is, is this becomes a diagnostic tool for you 
so that you can eventually attain to the ideal, but you will never even pursue the ideal unless you take the ideal seriously. Does this, does this make sense? So for example, um, when I go in to get a physical, uh, I, you know, they take blood out of you, and then a couple weeks later, you get an email, and it says, hey, uh, create a new account and log in, and you'll find a report, you know? And so I do that, and I go in, and I find out that I have something in me that isn't supposed to be there. And the, the way I find out is, it's like, oh, you know, uh, this is the normal range, and you have this much, right? It's not life-threatening or anything like that, but you have, you have this much. And so then, of course, being the paranoid person that I am, I go online and I go, you know, what are the symptoms of having too much of this? And then I, and then I go, oh, okay. And then I go, how do I get rid of this, you know? And, and, and then I start taking... You know, and I'm drinking green juice in the morning and taking chlorella, whatever that is, uh, you know, to cleanse this stuff out of me. Uh, but the thing is, I don't feel any symptoms, right? No symptoms, but it, uh, symptoms don't matter. Like, the, here's the reality. Normal, normal is here and you're here. This wrecks my analogy from the rest of the morning. <laughs> But you understand, right? Like, this is the ideal, and you have way too much. That's wrong. That's wrong. So, um, when you see that you have something toxic, you can do these things. You can destroy the rules and say, whatever, all doctors are wrong. And, and I'm fine because I don't, I don't feel any symptoms, right? You can walk away. You can say, I am never taking another blood test the rest of my life. Too depressing. This reminds me of um, Car Talk years ago, that show that I used to listen to on Saturday mornings. My favorite episode, this gal calls in. She says, I borrowed my dad's car for a long trip, like a 300-mile trip, and uh, the warning light went on on the, on the engine thing, and it was so annoying to me that I went into the uh, glove compartment and I pulled out some, some electrical tape and I covered the warning light. <laughs> and she said, and then I felt great until the, the smoke started coming out of the engine and the engine died and, and then I, you know, I had it towed and I found out that I burned up, I destroyed my dad's car, right? And so she's calling in like these car talk people are like priests, it's a confessional basically. <laughs> and she's calling in to you know, confess and you know, ask, you know, whatever, how to, it's too late. But she was basically asking, it's hysterical, because she was asking if uh, the car talk guys, whose names I can't remember, would call her dad <laughs> and confess, right? But you see, like, here's the, look, your engine's made for this, and it's here. One option is duct tape. You know, just ignore the warning light. No problem until it's a problem. So, or you live a double life and you say, yeah, no, it's all good. My engine's good. My blood is good. I'm not changing anything. And present as healthy without dealing with the issue. None of these are good options. So, the best option, like when I get my blood work back, 
The, here's the best option. It's to read Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's that verse, right? And so I'm reading now, and I'm saying, you know what? There's a problem. There's a problem, and I have to deal with the problem. And this, says Paul, is the point of the law. You're too young to remember the Steve Miller band, but remember what he wrote in Big Airliner? You've got to go to hell before you get to heaven. You have to, like you have to face the dissonance between who you are and who God wants you to be. Not to depress you, to liberate you. Not, not to make you sick, to heal you. Not to kill you, to give you life. You have to face the dissonance. And, and I, I'll just say fundamentally, this is a problem in American evangelical Christianity. Like we are unwilling to face our own dissonance and we tend instead to change the rules by turning Jesus into a white Republican, which he isn't. Nor is he a Democrat. Jesus is Jesus. And so we don't, we don't change the rules. We allow ourselves to be critiqued by the revelation of who God is. That's the point of the law. So all of that means... Uh, we're united, right, in, in our uh, uh, failure, in a sense. We're united in our death of idealism. But then, all of that is so that we can be united in our breakthrough beyond death. Which brings me to verse 13 of Romans 7. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So he, here's Paul's desire. Paul's desire for you is that you would become, quote unquote, utterly sinful. Utterly sinful. Now, what does that mean? Why would God want sin, as one translation puts it, to grow to full height? Like, why would God do that? Here's, here's why. Uh, Paul is trying to show us that God's law is the final word regarding what it means to be a healthy human living a rich life. The law is the final word. And so we're made for this, even though we're here, and we humans then, made to display God's character, made to make the invisible God visible, the, the law exposes where we fall short. The law is the blood work, in other words, if you could say it that way. So Romans 7, verses 14 to 21 is the roadmap of what we can know with certainty if we have any ideals at all. And, and again, as Brian read this, this is, this is the essence of it. Verse 16, he says, if I'm doing the very thing I hate, uh, that, that I don't agree that I want to do, I agree with the law. Confessing the law is good. So, no longer, no, no, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I know nothing good dwells in me, my flesh... The willing is present, the doing is not. The good I want, I don't do. So Paul is articulating here his dilemma, and, and let me just unpack it for you. Here's what Paul is saying. There will be a war in you between the flesh and the spirit. There will be. And I'm gonna just say that war is a good thing. And I'm gonna remind you here that Galatians 5 says that though you are now in Christ, you're in Christ, that war will go on until the day you die. So there's a piece of you resisting God's law. That's just the way it is. Uh, and, and so that's why we're in this war. 
There's a, we're in a war. We're basically in a war. And here's the other thing. If you fight that war on your own, you will lose every time. You'll lose. So in other words, if you're like this, more self-discipline, uh, you know, new resolution, fresh commitment, you'll lose. Because you don't have what it takes to win the war. That's why uh, when you do a careful reading of Romans 7, verses 14 to 25, it's entertaining to look at the pronouns and underline how many times Paul says, I. He says, I do the thing I don't want to do. I don't do the thing I should do. I'm not the one doing it. Flesh in me. And it's, it's about I, and it's about me, and it's about my efforts, and my discipline, and my resolve, and my commitment. And at the end of it, he says, wretched man that I am, and then this is the most important word in the whole chapter, who will deliver me? Because watch this, as soon as he says who, he's got off the ground of his own humanity and he's looking for outside help. Does this make sense? As soon as I begin to look for outside help, I find, to quote AA, the higher power that I need to live the life for which I'm created. But as long as I continue to think, I have it within me, in my discipline, in my, in my effort, in my resolve, in my power, in my strength. As long as I think I have it, I don't have it. I need who Christ is to become the ally who will win the war that will enable me to live the life for which I'm created. This is verse 25. Thanks be to God who gives us what? Victory through Christ. The victory comes only through Christ. So there's a war between the flesh and the spirit. That's good. Because why? That war shows me my need for an ally. So it, listen, I'm going to be very practical here. If you are fighting a battle this morning and you're not winning, that's a good thing. Because it's that not winning that causes you to say, I need help. Don't settle and say, you know what, that's just the way it is. Don't do that. Don't change the rules and say, my sexual addiction is the new normal. My greed is the new normal. My anger is the new normal. My lack of intimacy in my marriage is the new normal. My hidden affair is the new normal. Don't do that. You're, you're created for this, and this is attainable, but this is not attainable in the strength of your humanity. You need a life that you don't have empowering you to live the life for which you're called to live. You need Christ as your ally to become the victory for you. That's why he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, here you are. You're in a battle, and you're like this. I can't win the battle with, and then you fill in the blank. I can't win this battle. Maybe this morning you realize you've made peace with this battle. I'm going to call you to arms again. Do battle with your cynicism. Do battle with your disengagement. Do battle with your anger. Do battle with your, with your, with your bitterness, with your lust, with your fear of the future. Do battle. But in your battle... As you're overwhelmed, rather than becoming cynical and disengaging, rather than putting on a Jesus veil and singing louder while you continue to struggle, in your battle, this is what you should do. You should come to a point of saying, I can't win the battle with, and then you fill in the blank. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you will win the battle. Because that's the only way. Which is ironic on Veterans Day. Because Europe fought and fought and fought and fought and fought and fought and didn't win until they called in American troops. Wretched army that we are, who will deliver us? Do you understand? We need an ally. We, we need an ally who will be strength in our weakness, purity in our lust, forgiveness in our bitterness, joy in our sorrow, life in our death, love in our hate, humility in our pride. We need an ally. Don't destroy the rules and call losing winning. Don't surrender and walk away, stop fighting. And in God's name, don't pretend you're winning when you're not. Call in the ally. That's how we'll respond this morning. I'd love to have you populate these, these books here with your own battle. Not your name, but your own battle. I can't win the battle of lust. I can't win the battle of fear. I can't win the battle of disengagement, cynicism. Thank you, Jesus, that you will win the battle. And just name it as a testimony of public worship. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that uh, you desire nothing less than the resurrected Jesus flowing freely through us, bringing hope and, and, and generosity and healing and wisdom and strength into the world. And yet, uh, though we're called to bless, we have battles to fight. Every one of us have battles to fight. And so my prayer, Father, is that uh, as we honestly face our limited resources, the resource of our own humanity, my prayer, Jesus, is that we would turn to you and allow you to fight our battles. And we'll give you the glory and thank you for the adventure that awaits, praying in Christ's name. Amen.